Letters 50 through 52 of the History of Lady Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The History of Lady Barton by Elizabeth Griffith. Letter 50. Miss Cleveland to Lady Barton. Paris still, but on the point of quitting it in a few hours. My brother arrived here on Sunday night, and with him, but no matter, he is not of sufficient consequence to interrupt a narrative in which we are all so much interested. You may be curious, though. Lord Hume, then, came with Sir George from Naples. He has had a thousand ridiculous adventures in Italy. I have not seen him yet, and do not know when I shall. My eyes, as you apprehended, certainly told tales. For the moment Sir George saw me, he said, There is a glad expression in my sister's face that would almost tempt me to hope, beyond the bounds of reason. But alas, Fanny, there is no redemption from the grave. True, Sir George, I answered. But perhaps your treasure may not yet be consigned to that strong chest. He caught my hand, and pressing it to his heart, cried out, It is impossible that you should mean to trifle with my anguish. Yet did she not expire at Amiens? She never was at Amiens, I replied. Where, where, then, did her pure spirit take its flight and quit her lovely form? You must be more composed, Sir George, before I can talk further on this subject. Why was it started, Fanny? Why are all my wounds made to bleed afresh? Can you delight in cruelty? Far from it. You know how tenderly I sympathized with your distress when I believed her dead. If there is a cause in nature that can make you doubt it now, oh, speak it quickly and ease my anxious heart. I have strong reasons to believe she lives, or I should not thus have alarmed you. My friend Mrs. Walter has seen and conversed with a young lady of the name of Delia Colville, in a convent at Saint-Omer, who may be her. He dropped upon his knees, and exclaimed, Gracious heaven, but realize this blessed vision, let me no longer mourn my Delia's loss, and unrepining will I then submit to all that fate or fortune can inflict upon my future days. Speak, speak on, my sister." and say again that you believe she lives. Indeed, I do believe so, my dear brother. He rose and caught me in his arms, while the large drops ran plenteous down his cheeks. Tears relieved us both. I then proceeded to acquaint him with those circumstances which I have already informed you of, as I thought I might now venture to speak to him with more certainty, and that I felt too much pain in keeping him longer doubtful. His transports increased, and it is utterly impossible to give any idea of the excess of his joy. It was with difficulty that I could prevent his going at midnight to Lord H., but though I prevailed on him to defer his visit till morning, I could not persuade him to go to bed, or attempt to take any rest or food except a little wine and water, and the whole night was spent in repeating what I had told him before, and re-reading Mrs. Walter's letter. Selfish mortal as he is, he barely mentioned his having extricated Lord Hume out of some doleful disasters that befell him at Naples, in which an opera singer was the principal performer." but what consequence could he suppose the story to be of to me? Though I neither am or ever mean to be connected with his lordship, I am pleased that my brother saved his life, and that by his means he has got quit of an artful woman who might probably have ruined his fortune, and I have a kind of satisfied pride also in thinking that he is so much indebted to our family. I am afraid there is something mean in the above reflection, but I am not now at leisure enough to trace it back to its source." At some other time I will fairly and philosophically investigate its nature, and receive or reject it, according as I find it derived from a good or bad origin. Long before the ambassador's servants were stirring, my brother attempted his door, 
and I think he returned three times before His Excellency was visible. As soon as he had acquainted him with his business, Lord H. very obligingly set out with him for Versailles, and has promised to get the order for Delia's enlargement as much expedited as possible. My brother, as you may suppose, remains in waiting till it is finished, and is then to call on me and fly to Saint-Omer, without staying for the return of the Chancellor's messenger from Toulouse. I have sat all day in my travelling dress, as I would not delay him for any consideration. I mentioned your joy on the recovery of Delia. He returns your love a hundredfold, and says he will write both to you and Sir William as soon as his spirits are a little more composed. I fear to attempt answering my dear Louisa's letter at present, as I expect to be summoned by my brother every instant. His carriage turns into the porte-cochere this moment. Adieu, ma très chère Sue. F. Cleveland Letter 51. Miss Cleveland to Lady Barton. Saint-Omer. Though I have been here three days, my head is still giddy with the violent motion and emotion I have gone through since I left Paris. We set out the moment I had sealed my last letter to you, and travelled with as much expedition as French roads, horses, and postboys would permit. Sir George was determined to stop at Amiens, and notwithstanding the certain assurances I had given him that his Delia was alive, he seemed to be strongly agitated when we drove into the town. He inquired from our landlord whether he recollected a young English lady's dying there at such a time. And being answered in the affirmative, the colour forsook his cheek, he fell almost lifeless on a settee that was near him, and sighed out, "'Ah, Fanny, why have you deceived me?' I could not help being provoked at his weakness, and told him I did not know that he was to be a mourner for all the young English women that should die in France, that I was perfectly convinced Miss Colville was alive and well, or I should not have set out on our present expedition. But if he was inclined to think otherwise, he had better not pursue the journey any farther. He replied with his usual mildness, "'Who loves must fear, and sure who loves like me must greatly fear.' but my reliance on you has banished my apprehensions, and I now only desire to inquire into this affair, to know by what means Mrs. Colville could avail herself of a stranger's death to carry on the vile deceit she has practised. Our host, like most others, was very well inclined to be communicative, and informed us of the following particulars, that on such a day the diligence that goes to Paris stopped at his house, and set down a very pretty young woman who was so extremely ill that she was not able to travel farther and that notwithstanding all possible care was taken of her, she expired on the fourth day after her coming there. They had discovered before she died that she was an English heretic, as she absolutely refused to let any of their clergy attend her during her illness, but they knew not even her name, nor whom she belonged to, and though her clothes and effects were sufficient to defray the expenses of her funeral, yet as she was not a Catholic, she could not be interred in consecrated ground, and mine host, to use his own phrase, said he was in a perfect quandary to know how he should dispose of the body. But, as good luck would have it, a lady and her maid arrived at his house the next day in a post-chaise. As they were English, he acquainted them with his distress, and the maid was sent to look at the dead person in order to know if she could give any account of her. She returned to her mistress, and they were for some time shut up together. At last the lady herself went to look at this lifeless beauty, and the moment she saw her she gave a loud scream and ran back into her apartment. Some time after, the maid called for him and told him that it was her lady's daughter who had died there, and gave some hints of her having eloped from her friends. She desired that everything might be prepared in the best manner for sending the body to England, and strictly charged him not to let any person go into the chamber where she lay, but those who were immediately concerned about the body. 
She added that he might dispose of the young lady's effects as he thought proper, except a small trunk, which contained only a miniature picture, a pocket-book, and some letters, and the lady would pay all the necessary expenses on this melancholy occasion. Everything was then done as she directed to the mutual satisfaction of mine host, and that of the barrier of the living and robber of the dead, Mrs. Colville. I have not now leisure to expatiate on this extraordinary coincidence of circumstances, yet I must observe that fortune seemed inclined to favour Mrs. Colville's deceit by the particular situation of the young woman at Amiens, whose interment had imposed on all Delia's friends, even on her lover, and prevented any further inquiry about her. I dare say you are by this time very impatient to get us to our journey's end, but don't be in a hurry, Louisa, for our haste in setting out before the next day occasioned a very disagreeable delay, as it brought us to the gates of Saint-Omer an hour after they were shut, and obliged us to pass a miserable night in what they call an auberge, but in our country I think it might be more justly styled a barn. At last the wished-for morning came, and we pursued our way directly to the convent. It is impossible to give you any idea of my brother's emotion. When we were shown into the parlour I desired to see the superior. I know that I must not stop here to give you a description of her person, but indeed she is a fine old lady. As soon as she appeared I delivered the king's mandate to her, which she read with great dignity, but not without surprise, and said if she had been imposed on with regard to the young lady in question she was not to blame, and added that she was ready on the instant to obey the king's order, by delivering Miss Colville to my care. Sir George, in a transport, exclaimed, "'Let me but see her, madam!' There I interposed my negative, for Delia's sake, as I feared the effects which so unexpected an interview might have upon her spirits. It was therefore at last agreed to that I should go into another parlour, see Mrs. Walter, and send her to prepare Delia for such a joyful event. Our amiable friend soon came to me, and I have the happiness to tell you that she is most wonderfully recovered.' but in pity to my brother's impatience I scarce waited to inquire her health before I appointed her the messenger of glad tidings to our dear Delia. She returned with her in an instant, but when the lovely girl beheld me she could not speak. She made an effort to put her hand through the grate and sunk down on a chair that stood near her. Tears came to her relief, and she at last articulated, "'Oh, my beloved Fanny, my more than sister!' At that word she blushed and hid her face, as if to wipe away the tears. I instantly replied, You are, my dear, the sister of my choice, and by that tender name, for my brother's sake, I beg you to compose yourself. He is now in the house, and most ardently longs to see you, but must not be indulged at the expense of injuring your health by an increase of agitation. If you were calm, he should appear this moment. I am quite calm, she said, and fainted away. I do not think I was ever so terrified in my life. By the assistance of the nuns, she was brought to herself in about ten minutes, and by the superior's permission, Sir George was admitted into the parlour with me. I thought their meeting would have killed us all. Even an old nun wept, while she administered drops and water to the whole company. I feel myself too much affected, even at this instant, to be able to repeat the conversation that passed at the time. Sir George embraced me as if I had been his mistress, and Delia clung round Mrs. Walter's neck, calling her deliverer, guardian angel, etc. When our transports had a little subsided, I proposed our adjourning to the inn, till we could be accommodated with private lodgings, for we had before agreed to wait the return of the Chancellor's messenger at Saint-Omer, as it was absolutely necessary that my brother should have a little rest after his fatigue both of mind and body. 
but he was not fated to taste repose as speedily as I then hoped for. I received Miss Colville in due form from the hands of the superior, by whom many compliments and apologies were made to her late prisoner. Delia's behavior was charming, for instead of reproaches for the severity she had suffered, she returned thanks for the great care that had been taken of her, and took a most polite and even affectionate leave of the whole community. Mrs. Walter and Olivia accompanied us to the inn, and we passed the day in mutual congratulations and in moralizing on the providential series of incidents that had procured Delia's deliverance. But toward evening we all perceived a visible change in her countenance, and before midnight there appeared strong symptoms of a fever. My brother was almost distracted. My heart bleeds for him. Should she again be torn from his fond heart, I think it would be impossible that he should survive the second blow. But I will hope the best. He has not gone to bed since we left Paris. He never stirs from the antechamber of the room where she lies, and looks so dreadfully that I am shocked at seeing him. The physicians here say that she is not in danger, but they are so miserably ignorant that I cannot rely on their judgment in a case where I am so sincerely interested. Mrs. Walter and I sit up by turns and never leave the dear invalid for a moment. I fear she suffers from her concern for us, but she promises, and I hope will perform her engagement, to be well in a few days. On the very day that we took her out of the convent, there came a letter from her mother, entreating the superior to send Delia to some other nunnery, and charging her to deny her ever having been there to any person who should inquire after her. Thank God we have counteracted her wicked scheme, and I trust he will restore her to our prayers and wishes. Again excuse me, my Louisa, for not entering upon the subjects mentioned in your last letter, as the present situation of our beloved brother and adopted sister engrosses all my thoughts, and I cannot even allow a minute's attention to what appears a very extraordinary circumstance, which is Lord Hume's following us from Paris, and lodging directly opposite to us at Saint-Omer. He sends five or six times a day to inquire Delia's health, and writes a letter once a day to Sir George. I can't help being pleased with this appearance of attention and good nature to my brother, and at the proper respect he shows in not taking the advantage which he might of obtruding himself into my presence, under pretense of visiting his friend. Why, oh, why has he foolishly deprived himself and me of what once appeared to have been so great a pleasure to us both? But that is past. I do not, nor I will not, think of him. Adieu, my dearest sister. F. Cleveland. P.S. You know that Sir George, Mrs. Walter, Delia, and Olivia all love you. Forgive me, then, for uniting their affections with mine, and presenting them in one bouquet together, instead of offering them to your acceptance in detached sprigs. Delia has slept all the time I have been writing. She wakes this moment. She is much refreshed. I fly to tell Sir George. Letter 52. Miss Cleveland to Lady Barton. saint -Omer. Our fears have been much increased for Delia's life since I wrote last, but thank heaven they are now happily over. Her disorder turned out to be the measles. The physicians have pronounced her out of danger, and all our spirits are attuned to the sweet harmony of love and joy. If I had not been witness of them, I should not easily have credited an account of the extravagancies which Sir George was guilty of during her illness. I find, Louisa, that when these philosophic gentlemen are thrown the least out of their bias, they are not a bit more steady than ourselves, and hang up philosophy should be the motto of them all, whenever their passions are thoroughly interested. But not to treat my brother too severely, his was a very particular case, and had his treasure been snatched from his arms, almost in the moment he had recovered it, the trial would, I think, have been too severe for human fortitude. 
the messenger returned from Toulouse while Delia was in the utmost danger. We did not therefore at that time trouble ourselves to inquire what Mrs. Colville had said or done on this extraordinary occasion, but we are since informed that she absolutely insists on her daughter's being dead and buried, and denies her having placed her in the convent. It is shocking to think how very near she was to speaking truth at the very time she uttered this falsehood. She sent off another express to the superior of the Ursuline, with a letter to tell her that more than her life depended on her steadiness in denying her ever having received Delia into the convent, and promising to give a thousand guineas to the foundation, provided she took care to secrete her effectually. The good old lady has put this letter into my brother's possession, and he in return has made a present to the sisterhood of five hundred pounds. This paper would be proof sufficient against Mrs. Colville if we had not a still more undoubted evidence in the person of our dear Delia. The moment her health is established, we shall return to England, and notwithstanding my joy at her recovery, shall quit Saint-Omer with regret, as I cannot prevail on my beloved Mrs. Walter to accompany us. She and her sweet little girl are perfectly idolized in the convent, and I fear if Mrs. Walter's situation would admit of her taking the veil, that she would certainly pass the remainder of her days in that quiet asylum. To prevent this, I wish long life to the most worthless being upon earth. I should not specify Colonel Walter here if Mrs. Colville were not alive. I wish they were married together, and then I am pretty sure there is not a pair in the drawing-room of pandemonium that would not readily give them due place and precedence. But I will have done with these infernals. And now for your long, too long, unanswered letter. I hope by this time Sir William's recovery has removed the anxiety you must necessarily feel on his illness, and released you from a confinement that might possibly injure your health. Were it not for these considerations, I know of few offices more pleasing than attending a person we love in slight disorders. There is something extremely flattering to a generous mind in the idea of administering relief to another's pains, to explain the thought, explore the asking eye. What a delightful employment! And when crowned with success by the recovery of our patient, we are conscious of a certain exultation in the mind, which can only arise from the certainty of having done what nature claims and charity enjoins. I have of late experienced great pleasure in the execution of this duty, from my attendance on Mrs. Walter and Delia, and am therefore inclined to elevate the office of nurse-tending, by placing it amongst our rational powers, and rescuing it from the mean character of one of the mere duties of life. Yet I fear I shall make but few converts to my opinion, especially amongst the gay world, who, looking upon it in such a servile light, rank it with fasting, penitence, and prayer, and too often postpone them together, till they may need them all themselves, and then are left, in their turn, to the care of servants and other mercenaries. Mais assez, sur ce point. If Miss Ashford be a woman of sense, you run no hazard in trusting her with your opinion of Colonel Walter, though she were ever so much in love. If she be weak, she stands more in need of such a friendly warning, and if she should break with you, in consequence of it, I think you may easily console yourself for the loss of such an acquaintance by reflecting that you acted from a spirit of friendship, of which she has shown herself unworthy. I perfectly approve of your conduct towards the person himself, and am, for your sake, glad to exculpate Lord Lucan from the weakness, might I not add the dishonour, of having made a confidant. What a charming girl is our Harriet! I must call her so, for indeed I have a very great claim to her affection, from having unsolicited, 
bestowed so large a portion of mine on her, which I hope, when she is Lady Lucan, don't start, Louisa, and her heart quite at ease, she will generously repay. Now pray let me be indulged in talking a little of myself, et mon pauvre amant humilié et humiliant, for I believe one, and confess the other. My brother has informed me of Lord Hume's misadventures at Naples, the particulars of which I shall not trouble you with at present, as they are nothing different from the two general pranks and hazards of youthful spirits, and may serve us better to laugh at, on the first tete-a-tete we may ever have the pleasure of enjoying together. I bestow a generous wish that Sir George's notion about this matter may prove true, that as he has not only seen, but felt, his folly and extravagance, he may be more likely to act prudently for the rest of his life than if he had never erred. This is a maxim universally propagated, and may in some instances be true, but I can scarce think it a sufficient foundation for a woman of sense to build her happiness on. To a man who has been accustomed to the artful blandishments of an abandoned woman, I should much fear that the delicate endearments of a wife would appear as tasteless and insipid, as true wit to the epigrammatist, or the sweetest viand to the spiced palate. But all this is merely matter of speculation, and no manner of consequence to me, for Lord Hume has never yet attempted to pay me a visit, either at Paris or here, and Sir George has not hitherto been in a situation to invite him, especially as, from a very proper delicacy, he has never acquainted him with the circumstances of Miss Colville's story, and though we set out from Paris at the same time, he kept different stages from us all the way. The account that my brother has just given me of that particular is this, that they had agreed at Naples to travel together to England, but on their arrival at Paris, and his hinting to him that I had come to meet him there, on account of some singular piece of business or other, he had immediately estranged himself from any further connection with him, saying, after his lively manner, that as he looked upon himself to be in the nature of a redeemed knight, he thought it his bounden duty to attend his deliverer, in the quality of a humble squire, till he had escorted him safe into his own country, but should wait upon him at such a respectful and unprying distance as might leave the privacy both of his conversation and transactions perfectly free from any manner of restraint. My brother, you know, was abroad when our affections commenced and grew together, while I was under the matronage of my Aunt Marriott. When he returned I had not courage enough to acquaint him with a secret, which would better have become Lord Hume himself to have informed him of, as they have ever lived on the most friendly terms together, and in the present situation of the affair it would be extremely indiscreet and absurd to breathe the least hints of it now. Our childish affections, as they must naturally be formed without judgment, are generally unfortunate attachments, as they sometimes leave such traces on the heart as a long life of maturer reason can scarcely wear away. And to you I will not blush to own, that were it not for that fatal letter which Lord Hume wrote to me from Naples, and which is as indelibly engraved on my heart as the first impression he made there, I could again be weak enough, were he to solicit it, to reassume those rosy fetters which I fancied our juvenile hands had formed sufficiently strong to hold us both for life. But that letter, Louisa, I cannot forget it. I must therefore try to forget the writer of it. I am, however, vastly pleased with the delicacy of his present behavior. I told you in my last that he lodges opposite to us, he is generally planted at his window, but whenever I approach mine he bows and retires immediately. He has, it seems, no kind of business in this place, but stays here from the mere possibility of his being in some degree, or by some chance or other, 
useful to my brother, to whom he thinks himself everlastingly indebted for his kindness to him at Naples. Gratitude cannot exist in a base mind. How, then, can gratitude and ingratitude subsist in the same heart? How can the same man run so far in arrear to the account of love, and be so ready to overpay the debt of friendship? Were he a man hackneyed in the ways of the world, I should not be so much surprised at this inconsistency of character. Men of gallantry, I have heard, consider women as bigoted Catholics do heretics, and hold no faith with them. And that sweet line which Shakespeare has put into the mouth of the innocent Juliet is repeated with perhaps an equal degree of contemptible exultation by the abandoned courtier and the aping sit. At lovers' perjuries, they say, Jove laughs. But Lord Hume is young, and youth is the spring of virtue. At least it is the season when we are most liable to feel the compunctious visitings of nature, in consequence of our trespassing against her laws by injuring the peace or happiness of others. But I am myself trespassing against her first emotion, that of self-preservation, by dwelling on a subject which must forever be productive of pain, notwithstanding my repeated efforts to blunt the arrow's point. I congratulate you on the near prospect of happiness which opens to your friend, Miss Lester. May it terminate in the possession of all her wishes. I hope she is by this time Lady Creswell, and that my sweet little Harriet had the pleasure and honour of being her paranymph. I consider this office as a step to advancement, and I suppose most young ladies are of my opinion, as they are generally very desirous of it. I think I have now, though slightly, touched upon every article of your last letter, and I hope to find a packet from you at my return to Dover Street, and that soon, very soon after, I shall be able to give you an account of the joining of a pair whose hearts are, I believe, as firmly united as any that ever took hands, from the first wedding in Eden down to this present day. Adieu, my dear Louisa. You are loved and remembered by all here, but by none more affectionately than F. Cleveland. End of letter 52